Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you. Um, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your great plan of salvation. Lord, as we uh, come to this time of year and sort of uh, celebrate the coming of Christ, uh, Lord, we um, were forced to realize that this plan has been in motion for thousands of years. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who uh, created us, that loves us, that came up with a, a plan, Lord, to restore us into relationship with you. Uh, as we go through days that are difficult and trials that, that are hard at times, um, Father, we look to you and we thank you that you're a greater than any circumstance that we're going through. You're greater than any trial that we're going through. And Father, as we head into the holiday, which celebrates the birth of Christ, Lord, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to um, to, to really keep our, our minds, our thoughts focused upon you. Um, may we keep Christ in the center of our hearts. Father, I pray for each person who is, who is here, who is listening, Lord, that... Um, if they're not certain about where they are in relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would help um, them to connect the dots, to understand who Jesus is, what the gospel is, um, that they would be able to receive this wonderful gift um, of life that Jesus offers to us. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country of the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so sort of as an introduction there, um, where this story sort of, un- how it unfolds, um, I love the Gospel of Luke. It's written by a Gentile. It's written really to, to non-Gentiles. It's, it's written to those who, who may not have the sort of the, the bearings to understand God's working throughout human history. And so Luke really presents um, the story of Christ uh, at, the, at the lowest common denominator. He, he leaves really no gaps. He tells the story. He, he researched. He, he documented everything that he discovered. And really this physician, history sort of records him as being a historian, not a, not, a, not, a, not a physician, because of the work that he did in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. He interviewed all of these people, eyewitnesses, the first, first four verses of Luke he explains, he's like, I talked to people that saw and touched him and verified and, and, and with their whole lives, they testified to the truth of the things that I am writing out to you in, in basically chronological order so that you might know who this Jesus is. It's powerful. This isn't some fairy tale. This is rooted and grounded in history. If you go to extra biblical sources, and you start looking at the history of the claims of things that are said throughout the Gospel of Luke and really throughout the whole Bible, uh, history, archaeology, verifies the things that are said here. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. And so Luke opens his story with this, the story of this man, Zacharias. He's an older man. We know that he and his wife, Elizabeth, they're beyond childbearing years. Uh, which during that time, it would be, we know that that would be over 60 years old by the time, um, in, in that setting, the words that Luke used, it referred to somebody that was over 60 years old. Uh, they were 
in sort of their retirement years. Um, they had no children. Um, Zacharias was a, was a priest. He was faithful to do his, his duty at the temple. And so the story sort of opens up. Zacharias is, is he, he receives the sort of the, it was essentially he won the lottery. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity to enter into this temple, a huge, huge temple. I forget how many yards. I, think, I want to say it was 57 yards by 57 yards and 20 stories tall that sat in the, in the, in the temple courtyard. Um, huge place. He was allowed in uh, to the location just outside of the holiest of holies. Um, if you were allowed to do this in your lifetime, you are never allowed to do it again. And so he enters in uh, to the temple there's a bunch of people behind, outside waiting for him. He was to go in there to, to light uh, the incense and then to come out. When he came out, he would sort of give a benediction, a prayer, and then the people would go on. But when he goes in there, he's met by this angel, this angel Gabriel. And Gabriel looks at him and he says, you know, your prayer has been answered and your wife will have a child. And so he's sort of overwhelmed with, what are you, does this normally happen when guys come in the temple? Like, I don't know what's happening here. And so he asked, the, the, he asked Gabriel some questions like, how will I know these things will be true? You know, I'm, I'm an old man. My wife's beyond childbearing years. And even, even in that, she was barren, that she was unable to have children when she was younger. And so Gabriel responds with, dude, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. God is the one who gave me this message to come and to deliver you. And because of your lack of faith, uh, your sign that you're going to receive is that you're not going to be able to speak until the child is born. And so eventually he goes out. The people ask him all these questions. He's doing sign language or something, trying to explain to them what happened. We learned that Elizabeth did conceive. And basically they went into seclusion for about five five months, or really for the whole pregnancy, but our story we're going to pick up in five months. Um, following that story, uh, on the northern side from Jerusalem, we go up to the hill country of Nazareth, a town that nothing came out of. It wasn't really a town that anybody bragged about. Um, in fact, going through the Old Testament with, with kings, this was one of the, the regions that through, through Israel's history. Uh, one of the kings tried to gift this region to one of the, the other kings, and he said, I don't want that re Why are you giving me that dump? Like, I... You can have that. Like, I thought you were my friend. I thought you wanted to bless me with something. And yet you want to give me the region of Galilee. That's just ridiculous. And so there, there's this young lady. Um, we don't know how old Mary was. But, but it's, it's very reasonable to believe that she was 12, 13, 14, 15, probably at the oldest, maybe 16. But a very young girl. That was marrying age, uh, during that time, that's, they were mature enough and, and had the capacity to, to, to enter into life at that, at that age. Compared to us, we're a little bit more immature. I would say that we probably are more immature as a, as a culture than they are. We normally look like, oh, how could a 13-year-old get married? As I have a 10-year-old daughter, so I'm not saying this like I want to go back to that way. But, but, but for them, it was th this, they were mature. And we see, we'll see in Mary's, her prayer, her reaction. This was a godly young lady. And... Uh, she meets the angel. She's told she's, she's going to have a child and she's not going to have the relationship with a man to conceive that, that, that God would be the father. And I'm sure she had a bunch of questions. She did have questions, but unlike Zacharias's, her questions were sort of grounded in faith. Um, she receives it. She ends with, you know, for nothing in verse 37 is impossible with God. And she says, okay, you said it. I believe it. We'll work out the details as we kind of go down this road. I, we'll see. And so we pick up our story here in verse 39, which we're kind of picking up from last week. Uh, I want to sort of ease into the waters. We read, now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. So I have a map behind me. And... Uh, and so Nazareth is that northern region. The Sea of Galilee is up there. There's a town just west of Galilee. It's in the hill country. Um, that's where the top of the arrow is. It's about 80 miles as the crow flies down to the southern region of Judah. 
So she, she goes down 80 miles to Judea, which is just west of the Dead Sea. Uh, the climate is very different. Um, it's barren down in the Dead Sea area. We don't know which town that she went to, but she immediately goes down and she sees uh, her relative. You know, we sort of think in terms of that it was her cousin. We don't really know. It comes from verse, I think it's 36. Um, the older translation said, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth, that even your cousin um, Elizabeth, we really don't know. The, the word there is, is relative. Um, so we, we just, we know there's some relationship. She immediately takes off, gets to Judah as fast as she can. And when she enters the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth, um, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting and the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now, this is powerful. This is like, like why would Mary want to get down to Elizabeth so quickly? She just saw an angel. And remember, in the encounter with the angel, what did the angel say? He said, behold, your, your relative Elizabeth is going to conceive. And in fact, she's already conceived, and she's, she's um, I believe it's, what, five months along, six months along, five months along? I'm six months along, yeah. I knew that six months sounds right. Um, so she's six months along. If I'm married, say, well, I trust you by faith, but, but what is that saying? Uh, uh, trust but verify. So I'm going to get down to Elizabeth. By six months, she should tell that she's pregnant. So she sees her, her cousin, whatever, this, this relative that she knows who's 60-plus years old, she gets down there, she sees the belly, and, and I imagine the emotions of this event. Because really, if you think about it, of, of everybody that's there, these are the only three people in the whole wide world that can actually believe, without really a whole lot of faith, what happened. She could go down there... Old Zacharias and, and Elizabeth, they can tell everybody what happened. They'd be like, I don't know. Like, that sounds like a pretty interesting story. And if, if they were skeptics like me, then when you start seeing Elizabeth get pre pregnant, it's like, oh, well, like, technology has come a long way. These doctors are doing amazing stuff. And that's probably what happened. And now young Mary, who goes down there and sees this, she sees the angel. They all know what's happening at this point. And... and and to see what, like, to feel these emotions, to, to rejoice together. This is what fellowship is, this word that we talk. Fellowship and the Christian connotation of it is, is really are, are people who are united around sort of their mutual relationship with God. And so here, these three individuals, there's, there's, there's no issues with the, the difference in age. Like, let's not lose track of this is like a 12 or 13-year-old with a 60-year-old, and they are as one sort of in awe of their God. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but at this point, in this stage in the game, Elizabeth is six months along. Mary is like four weeks into her pregnancy like jesus was man he's full like don't that like joel like one of the things when he says all doped up answering his questions about the one of the most difficult questions to answer he i get this text through judy and i'm like you're asking about the hypostatic union of christ and i this is something that like theologians wrestle with like how how can Jesus be fully God and fully man. This is something that's mind, like our brains are finite, yet the Bible says what it is and, and Jesus evidenced it. And I don't know that I can do this on Norco. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to take a nap. I'll send you some links. I'll explain. I'll do the best I can do to like let some minds help you wrestle through these. But so here Jesus in the womb is like, I don't know, is he like, 
the Bible doesn't really tell us when the Spirit did what the Spirit did with Mary. Like, like how that all happened, we don't know. But to go 80 miles, she could have done that in a couple days. So she could be like, like one or two days a week, two weeks in, into sort of where Jesus is a baby in her womb. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this, this is sort of the Bible throughout talks about conception is when life begins. And so here Jesus is in the womb, like, like I don't even know if he, like he has a heartbeat at this point. Like he could. John is six months. He leaps in the womb at the Lord. It's, it's, it, it, this is powerful. Elizabeth looks at Mary and, and she talks about Mary's faith because she trusted in the Lord. They all recognize their need of this Savior. And this Savior is this, like, one, two, three, four days into conception, our Lord Jesus. And the one thing that we must never get confused during Christmas, which is easy to do, is we talk about the incarnation, which is the theological word referring to the birth of Christ. It's easy for us, because it's how it went for us, that we came into existence at conception. Okay? Like me, you guys, what you became a person. Well, I don't need to go into biology here. When you be, when you know, when things happen and it happens, <laughs> there's a child, and that's you. You came into existence. You didn't exist before that. And so we think because that's how it happened with us that Jesus came into existence at conception. That's not at all what happened. See, Jesus is God, fully God. Jesus always existed. He, he stepped from heaven to earth at his conception. He, the great kenosis that Paul writes about in Philippians, that he emptied himself, that somehow, and I, I can't in my finite brain explain it, but this God, this creator of ours, that Colossians 2 tells us that, that he, he, he was the agent that spoke the world into existence. When you go to the Old Testament in Genesis and the creation account, the, the word there for God is in the plural. And the English translation says, let us do this. Who's the us? That's the, the triunity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So Jesus always existed in eternity past. You got to figure out where I was. And this is not in my notes. But this is important for us. So when we celebrate Christ's birth, we're not, we're, not, we're not celebrating his coming into existence like when we celebrate one of our birthdays. We're celebrating that God became man to live in a way to display the nature of God for us. The opening chapter of John, chapter, John chapter 1, it talks about that that Jesus exegeted or explained the Father. That if you want to understand the nature and the character of God, there's no better picture for a human to see the character and nature of God than to look at the person of Christ. And, and, and as we look at this story, Mary, Elizabeth, and Zacharias, they understood that whatever was happening within them between John the baptizer being in, in the womb of Elizabeth and Jesus being in the womb of Mary, they knew that human history was about to be defined and transformed by the things that were happening. Jesus cut through history, everything from how we mark time. Uh, historically, Jesus turned the world upside down. And so they're there, great emotion. And then we see Mary in verse 46. This is a, a 12, 13-year-old. As a side note, to look at the prayer and the depth of this young lady. Like, don't think that young children don't have the aptitude or the capacity <laughs> to think deeply, to understand things spiritually. We, we have a tendency to sort of uh, to discredit young children's aptitude for spiritual things. But when I look at Jesus, they seem to be the example. When I look at this prayer of Mary, we're going to see that, that Scripture just 
bleeds in her speech. This isn't like she's quickly, oh, what was that verse? And she's Googling on her phone, like, what was that Old Testament passage? Like, this just comes out of her. She had this memorized. This, this prayer is often referred to as the Magnificent. It's not really, like, important. But the third word in the English translation in the New American Standard, it says exalts. It could say magnifying your translation. But in the Latin Vulgate, it was the very first word, and it's magnificent or magnificent, magnificent, magnificent I don't, magnificant, you know. And, and so that's how this prayer is sort of um, described. And so she begins, and Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regarded, he had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in thoughts in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and set away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So this is a beautiful prayer. I I halfway thought coming into this week we would just sort of cover this, this prayer, but I, I'm like, ah, oh, let's kind of cover the whole chapter as we, so that next week we can cover the birth of Christ. I, I didn't want to just skip over a bunch of stuff. And so when I look at this prayer, um, there's three things that, that really sort of bubble to the top. Um, the, the first thing that I see in this is her need. She recognizes that she was in need of a savior. The, the very first, like, my soul exalts in the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. She's referring to Jesus in the womb as being her savior. I, 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 this subject always sort of, I never know how far to go. I don't want my background and how I was sort of raised and the things I see. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church, according to the Vatican, I'm being very clear because not every Catholic will hold to this, so I'm just saying the Catholic teaching, would say, and they've moved to a theological term that Mary is co-redeemer, that instead of the Trinity, there's actually a fourth component, and that's Mary. And that's where we get praying to Mary, you know, the beads. Mary needed a savior. If you follow Mary throughout the New Testament or the the Gospels and into Acts, you see she's right there with all of the disciples in need of a savior. Mary is a human. Mary is just like any one of us as far as sin goes. She's obviously like like a spectacular, wonderful, godly young lady. Like, I don't want to get too, like, Protestant in trying to dismiss Mary altogether. Because this is a 13-year-old God that the creators of the universe said, Who shall I deliver my son, the Messiah, through? And Mary was selected. Like, like this, you can't underscore that enough. That, that Mary is, like, she's a woman that will be blessed. That, that we're talking about her this morning. But when you read through this and you look at her life throughout she understands that she is a sinner in need of a savior just as much as any one of us in this room. And she starts by exalting, magnifying the Lord. She's rejoicing in her God, her savior, who she understands is the Messiah that's within her womb. It's powerful. She understands her place before God. So she understands her need. The second thing that bubbles up she, she recognizes her place before God. She understands that she will be counted blessed, that she was blessed throughout this 
to, to function in this capacity, to be used by God in this role. She isn't the one that's, she isn't the one who's giving blessings to other people. She's not the one sort of, uh, you know, the mother of God in the sense that she's giving stuff to us. She recognizes that her place before God is bowed down in worship and adoration. Uh, she understands who God is. We saw this back in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then within her prayer, as she prays scripture, all through this scriptures there, if you wanted to do a study on, on, on Hannah in the Old Testament, you'll see the prayer of Hannah and Mary's prayer. There are some similarities that sort of are interwoven. We see as she looks at God, that he, she just understands that God is so great, so mighty, so awesome. It reminds me of a children's song that I learned in Spanish. I never done it in English. Halfway was tempted to sing it to you all, but I fear I'll laugh. But it kind of goes, Dios es ten grande, and there's like our motions. I should really have Anna come up and do this. Dios es tan grande, tan fuerte y poderoso. I probably hacked that one up. No hay que no puede hacer. And then you clap and you go through that a whole bunch of times. And it says, my God, I got to read it in English. I got to do kind of both because I'm kind of nervous up here. But it says, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And you clap your hands twice and you go through this whole thing. We did this down in Tijuana with little kids all the time. And I'd be like, do it. Well, when there's a bunch of people singing, you can really muffle through the Spanish and make it look like you know Spanish. And like there's flexing and you see all the little kids flexing. The whole song about like God is so great and so big and so strong. There's nothing that he can't do. There's, there's no crisis in your life. There's no trauma in your life. There's nothing in your life that God doesn't have the ability or the capacity to get you through. Mary's at like one of the most exciting times in a young lady's life. She's about to get married. She's betrothed. That was essentially, that was, that was marriage at that point. The, the, the bond was serious. So if you were to go through the, the, the Bible and look for, or if, to reference that there was a widow that was still a virgin, there are cases in the Bible that ref, reference a, a lady who was a widow who's also a virgin. And the, re, the way that that comes about is they were betrothed. The husband dies before they were able to consummate the relationship. The understanding is, is that the woman was married. So, so Mary is now married and this angel Gabriel uh, approaches her. She's got to have this talk with Joseph trying to explain that she's pregnant. But don't worry, I didn't have an affair on you. <laughs> like any reasonable guy would understand that, right? You know, like this, is, this, was a, th- this was not an easy thing for Mary to navigate. This is very early on in her pregnancy. I don't even know that the talk with Joseph happened. I, I, I don't know. Like it's one of these things that as I'm talking, I'm like, I want to know if I can figure out chronologically where that talk with Joseph happened. Did she zip down there as fast as she could? Did it happen right away? I don't, I don't know. There's probably an answer, but I've been on bed for the last couple of weeks. So, um, but so she comes down here. She's worshiping God. She's praising God for how great and how mighty he is. And we learn in verse 56, and Mary stayed with her about three months. So she's down south in the region of Judah with Elizabeth and Zacharias, the, just the three of them, for three months. Now it's time for Elizabeth to have her baby. And so Mary heads back up home to Nazareth. And then our story continues. Luke continues with the story of the birth of John the Baptist, a significant character in the gospel account. He's, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's going to walk onto the pages of the New Testament. He is the forerunner of Christ to prepare the people for the Messiah. And this is just a wonderful, funny story, starting in verse 57. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. Throughout today's story, that we've already passed one. There's a couple more coming. But this, this teaching of God's mercy is another theme that, that bubbles up. They understand that they're dealing with the divine. There's, there's nothing in them that requires God to act gracefully to them. 
In fact, they deserve nothing but his wrath, and they recognize that they've received mercy from God, that God has withheld punishment and wrath that they deserved as sinners. And so the neighbors recognize now that Elizabeth is pregnant. She's having this, she's, she's had the baby. They, they see God's hand in her life, that God has been merciful to her. They're rejoicing with her. They're excited. And, and it happened that on the eighth day, it's time to circumcise the young man in the Jewish home. They came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father because that's what you did. It's just, it's like, I think of Mexican culture. You know, it's like you have the father's name and then the child, the second child, the first born son gets dad's name. And then, and that's just how it's done. Zacharias hasn't been able to talk for nine months. So the neighbors are there. It's obviously like this big sort of ceremony. They're going to circumcise the child. They're going to do the official naming of the child. And logically, this child's name is going to be Zacharias. But his mother in verse 60 answered and said, no, indeed. He shall be called John. Now, if you'll turn back with me, if you want to, back to verse 13, this encounter. Remember Zacharias in the temple, the angel Gabriel. In verse 13, he says, but the angel said to him as he appeared, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition has been heard. I believe that the prayer was for the Messiah to come. God had been silent for 400 years. The promised Messiah was on the way. Then he says, and distinct from this prayer, Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And so now we fast forward the story. All of the friends in the family, the community, they're getting ready to to bless this child, to circumcise circumcise him, to to officially and formally name him with Zacharias. And Mary says, nope, time out. His name will be John. And I can sort of see the neighbors sort of, John? What's the milkman's name? Or like, who? Like, where did, where did this come from? I mean, I, I'm not making this up. Look at verse 61. And they said to her, there is no one of your relatives who would be called by that name. What are you not telling us? Who's the father? John doesn't make sense. And they made signs to her father. I think it's fu- funny. Like, we're told that he couldn't speak. There's nothing about his, his ears not speak. you know, not, not being able to work. We do this all the time. You encounter somebody that doesn't speak your language. And so naturally, you speak your language louder <laughs> so that they can understand you. Don't we do that? The guy's not deaf. He can hear what's going on. But now they're, they're, making, they're, they're making signs to him. He can hear them, but they're, they're trying to sign back to him. As to what he wanted, to, he has the ultimate say. He's the, the man of the house. He's the father. This is his son that's supposed to be named after him. And certainly, he cannot want his son to be named John. And so he asked for a tablet. And he wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. Like, whoa, what's up with this? I really wish I could be more animated now, but my stomach's not going to allow me to get more animated on this. But there's so much material here, guys, to like really get into this. And so immediately when he wrote out, his name shall be John, it's settled. At once his mouth was opened and he could speak. I know we refer about pregnancy being nine months along, but I know that, um, of course I should have like done this in my notes, but I remember during that, how many weeks is pregnancy? 40 weeks. But I remember like when Anna got pregnant for the first time and I was like doing the math, I'm like 40 weeks. I'm like, okay, let's four divided by like trying to do the math. I'm like, that's more than nine months. So like, this is like nine or 10 months. Like how long was like, it was a long time not to be able to speak. As a person who enjoys speaking, to go nine, 10 months without being able to speak and suddenly he can finally open his mouth and express and share the things that he'd seen and encountered in the temple. And as he begins to speak, what he does is he begins to praise God. Now, at this point in the story, he has met or or encountered, he spent three months with Mary, understanding her side of the story. So he now knows that his wife is carrying John the Baptist, who was prophesied some 400 years ago in the book of Malachi, that this is the great prophet that was promised 
that that prophecy was being fulfilled through his son that has just been born, who he's now holding as a father. And then he's already seen Mary progress three months along with her pregnancy. If there was anybody that could believe in the virgin birth, it was him. To know that his Messiah now is in his relative's womb and developing and that his son is going to be this forerunner paving the way for the Messiah. It's, it's overwhelming to think of. And he began to speak in praise of God and the reaction of the people in verse 65, fear came on all of those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly on him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to pause. If you'll go back, just kind of to me, I just have to go to the other side. In verse 41, we see that through this encounter, that Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. And now we're told that Zacharias is filled by the Spirit. If we were to go back to verse 13-ish or so, I forget where it is, but earlier in the encounter in the temple, we were told that John the Baptist would basically be filled with the Spirit um, from the womb. Now, a theological sort of shift has happened from our understanding, like where we live in human history. We as Christians, according to Ephesians 1.13, when we hear the gospel that Jesus died and was buried according to the scriptures for our sins and that he rose from the grave, that's the gospel. And we're told in Ephesians 1.13 that when you hear that information and then you cross the line and you shift from knowing the factual information to believing upon him for salvation, at that moment, you're a Christian. And we're told that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that you're baptized by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed in him, sealed by him for the day of redemption. It's sort of um, a, a down payment, it says, of God. And so for us, the moment that we are Christians, believers, followers of God, we're told that the Spirit of God enters into our lives and we're sealed by Him. We're secure. It's not something that can be undone. You cannot lose your salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, which the story that we're reading today is happening in the Old Testament era, okay? Don't let me kind of blow your minds too much, right? This is, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. Now, I don't... now, when Luke wrote it, Jesus had already gone to the cross, but the story that he's documented, this is a historical narrative. So it wasn't necessarily commonplace for the Spirit of God to sort of, the, the Spirit would come upon individuals and would be with individuals and then would depart the individual when he was done using them. So this, this, is, a, this is sort of a fascinating encounter that we see, or this is a, at the time was an unusual encounter that the Spirit of God has now filled all three people of this family It makes sense. So when you look at the life of David, this is sort of a sidebar, sort of free of charge. When you look at David's life, his affair with Bathsheba and all the horrible things that he did connected with that, and then you see his repentance in Psalm 51, he prays and pleads with God, don't take your spirit from me. Don't don't depart from me. As Christians, we're sealed by the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, we're we're encouraged to not be drunk with wine, but be, to be filled by the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit. So, so we will, as Christians, be, have the Spirit within us. And how you live for God or how you're surrendered or yield to Him will sort of be the, the marker of how your gas tank is filled with the Spirit. So as you're yielded to God, the Spirit fills us and enables us to, to, to live for Him and to honor Him. If you're a Christian and you're in sin and you're walking disobediently with him, you're sealed by the Spirit, but you're, you're on fumes. And that what you'll get from the Spirit of God is a deep-seated, horrible, I mean wonderful, but horrible conviction. There's nothing worse than being convicted by God. Okay, I'll get back to the text for the sake of time here. So verse 67, so we see that his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a big deal to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, it still is, but even then, it's even it, it, this was unusual. And so 
he begins to prophesy. Now, as he speaks, uh, from verses 68 to about 75, he's speaking generally to the people who are there. Then in verse 76 down to verse 79, the attention shifts to his son, John the Baptist. I view this sort of, um, you know, we, we dedicate children. Like when children are born, the parents will come with their children. We'll pray for them. We'll send them on their, like, like we'll encourage the family to raise them. We pray for the child that they come to know Christ. Um, in, in our family, like we have enough pastors in our family that we kind of do this just at the hospital. But I, I read this, and I'm reminded of, of my children and, and being at the hospital, that, that feeling of awe, like in wonder that, that even a child, just regular birth, not even like talking about like a, like a prophet that was fulfilled a bunch of prophecy in the Messiah. But I think of like little Titus, you know, he's coming up, my little Titus is coming up on three years old, and like I'll never forget, Anna's still back in surgery, and the baby came out. And like wheeled in the cart from surgery to like wherever room he was going to. And it was just me and, and Anna's parents. And we picked him up and we just sort of prayed for him. And it was just this sort of like this awe moment. Lord, like keep your hand on this child. And I imagine that, that, that Zacharias has been dwelling upon thinking and meditating about this child in his old age. That God had promised, God had delivered to him. And now he can speak. And now he's just going to worship and praise God and pray for his son. It's beautiful. Verse 67, and he prophet, verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption. Notice redemption, salvation, all of these things bubble through his prayer. They all in this story understood that they were sinners in need of a savior in order to have a relationship with God. Had a had visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 17. I'm not going to cover it. But if you want to study Genesis chapter 17, what this is, this is the Abrahamic covenant. This is when Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac and God said, stop. I've made a promise to you and that through your seed, his only son Isaac, the promise of the Messiah would come. So Zacharias understood that this plan of salvation of God happened long ago. This isn't something we make up as humans. You know, we in our arrogant age, we think, oh, well, I'm going to you know, I'm gonna search for God when it's convenient for me. I'm going to kind of like, I don't really like, I don't like that Christianity plan, but I'm going to kind of come up with my own plan or go with this plan that's more palatable for me. The sort of how we interact with God, God is the creator of all things. It's his plan that he set in motion very early on. Back in like Genesis chapter three, you see the, the promise of what would come through Christ. And Zacharias, he's worshiping God. He's going back to this wonderful, unconditional covenant that God made with Father Abraham. And is now sort of the promise is coming to fruition. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. This understanding of righteousness, to, 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 to have this righteousness, this... I've put up on a screen Romans 5.19, if you want to study on your own, but it's this picture of that through one man, Adam, sin entered the human race, and sin has separated us from God. And that through another man, Christ... He paid for, for the, this, the penalty of the sin that has spread throughout all humanity. And in him, after believing, the righteousness of God gets credited to our account. And so here he understands we can go before God without fear. Our sin is paid for by the Messiah. It's beautiful. 
that this righteousness that we have is not our own righteousness. It's God's righteousness that has been credited to us through faith in Christ. In holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And now he shifts to his son and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God to which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is a beautiful prayer. I, like I'm trying to see the time there. Um, I think I have time. So a couple things I want to point out in this. The first thing that stands out to me is the knowledge of God. That, that God desires us to understand his plan. He desires us to know that salvation is available. If you want to go to uh, 1 John 5.13, you don't have to do that now, but on your own study, at the very end of 1 John, um, at the end of the Apostle John's life, he says that he writes all of these things that we can have knowledge of the assurance of our salvation. I don't think that there's anything that, that Satan wants to take away from us more than the assurance of the power of the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for each one of us to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Our salvation is totally contingent on the work that Jesus did, not on our own works. As you live through your life, live your life, Satan and your flesh will tell you like, oh, remember that? Remember what you did? Remember that abortion? Remember that getting really wasted and doing a bunch of stupid stuff? Remember this? Remember that you fill in your own blanks. And Satan will tell you that certainly God's work on the cross wasn't sufficient for all of that sin that you had participated in. But throughout the scriptures, God's trying to assure us over and over and over of his great love for us, his great plan for us in Christ, that he desires, in verse 77, to give people knowledge of salvation. God wants you to know that you're saved through Christ if you believe. It's beautiful. Throughout this passage, I've mentioned, I think five times I count, this picture of mercy bubbles up. I've put Romans 2.4 there as Paul's writing this great theological uh, document to, these, to the church uh, in Rome that he's never met. He says, I should have memorized it, but the essence of is like never forget sort of that you came to Christ because of God's great kindness towards you. It wasn't God's wrath. It wasn't him putting a bunch of threats on you. It was that God loved you and he was gentled gentle with you, and he showed you, he displayed his kindness to you. And that was the agent that sort of moved you from death to life. And I think that the implication is that for us who are believers in Christ, that we should respond in the same way. But it's so easy in our politically charged world and the, the great divide that's sort of happening in our midst is that we tend not to be kind to those that don't know Christ. We tend to get angry with them and to think all sorts of things about them. Where I think that we should model the example of our Father. That when we were sinners, separated from Christ, he was kind to us. And it was his love for us that sort of won us over. And they get all of this. Okay, we'll wrap, we'll conclude here. So it's Christmas. feels like it's about 80 degrees in here. The sun's shining. We don't understand this whole, like the white Christmas. I, I don't know what they're talking about. We have sunshine. Everything's turning spring. The flowers are starting to bloom. It just looks like wonderful out there. Um, you know, I don't think Christmas is about snow. Christmas, as we celebrate this week, is about recognizing Christ's coming. That, that God had a plan that long before we ever existed, God told us that he would send his son. And he put together all of these prophecies through the Old Testament that would have been, you, you just can't fake it. You, you can't 
come up with a counterfeit. You, you can't just sort of act like everything just sort of was happenstance. The, the odds of Christ or Jesus fulfilling that he was the Christ, it's, it's mathematically impossible, I think, to, to recreate. That Jesus came, he fulfilled everything with precise or with precision that he was who he claimed to be. It's beautiful. When I look at the story, we see that there's a great need for us, that, that we need a Savior, that humanity needs a Savior. And so if you're here and you're not sure if Christ has saved you or that you've responded to the gospel, it's as simple as believing. Hearing that Jesus died for you, that he paid the penalty for sin, you respond to that, I believe, I trust. That's how you become a Christian. For those of us who have believed that they have assurance to walk with him, to yield our lives to him. We learn about God in the story, his nature, that he's a God who desires to reconciliate us to him, that, that we would come back to him in relationship, that he wants nothing more. It's beautiful. And so, Father, as we reflect upon Christ this Christmas week, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep Jesus in the forefront of our thinking. Lord, as we go through all of our cultural um, celebrations of this wonderful holiday and the gift giving and the time with our family and sharing of gifts, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep this Christ in the center of our thinking. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to, to receive your word, to hear from you, to walk with you, Lord, all the days of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you are a loving, caring, kind, and compassionate Father. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.